And Alex was so gracious to come back, so fun to play uh, with him. Of course, Alex faithfully led our worship team for 14 years, all the whole time I was here uh, from the beginning, and so grateful for him and, and uh, his love for the Lord and love for music. You can turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. If you're new with us, glad that you're here. As Jason mentioned earlier, you can contact us a number of ways. Uh, the best way, I think, is just right there on the back of that seat. Uh, there's a QR code. If we can answer questions for you, if we can be a blessing to you, minister to you in some way, pray for you, it'd be our joy to do that. Uh, you scan that and it'll push you right into, right into an email and we'd love to hear from you, all right? Guidelines for public worship is our focus as we've uh, started in the pastoral epistles. We've been in now for oh, about, uh, I think about 10 months. And so it's been a joy to be together with you in the study. We've learned a lot about conduct in the church. And now we've moved as we've come to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, kind of in the middle of the letter to this church in Ephesus. We have uh, a hymn for the church right at the end of chapter 3 and then this beginning uh, where we just jumped in last week. So if you missed uh, the last couple, you're right on time. You're going to land right with a new part, and so it'll be a blessing to you. So turn in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. It starts this way, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything is created by God as good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Verse 5, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let's stop right there. Now, we, we jumped into our new section last week, so let's review just briefly uh, on this new section, and this passage comes on the heels of 1 Timothy 3.16. So if you still have your Bible open, look there. Verse 16 says this, a wonderful uh, hymn of the church. We looked at it extensively as we went through it. We won't do that again today, but just a joy to see this. Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And because when the letter was written, there were no chapter breaks, Paul is presenting the work of Christ as the key to godliness. That's what he does right there at the end of that instruction and order in the church, what leaders should look like, what should happen inside the church, the complementarian nature of men and women's ministries, and all of those kinds of things. And then he comes to this and just kind of draws the church back to the form of godliness that is the form. And it's just basic, isn't it? And he says, by common confession, which just means everyone should know this, everybody should be confessing this, this is the reality of life in Christ. It should come easily to them because it's a common confession, something everyone knows. And what is the thing that should come easily to them? The mystery, it says, of godliness. And, and because it's right here after the hymn of the church, which calls to mind the birth and the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the basis for godliness and that alone. And Paul brings up something that's obviously a direct attack on the simplicity of our holiness. And so it's not written in a vacuum, just like any other part of this letter to Timothy in Ephesus is written in a vacuum. There's obviously some issues going on. And if we read the letter and understand what it's saying, we can discover what exactly it is that's happening. So look at verse 1. He says, so right on the heels of that common confession, the mystery of godliness, which is remembering all these things, the birth, the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Then he says this, but... 
The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So as opposed to having this common confession and understanding the simplicity of our holiness in Christ, he says some will uh, fall away. And these words, but the Spirit explicitly says, just lets us know that since all prophecy is produced through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can know for certain that this information Paul is penning contained in Paul's letter came from the Spirit. And then we saw he said the word explicitly, and that's important. It just means in clear words. So it wasn't symbolic. It wasn't a metaphor, a simile. It was clearly stated. And that was our first principle relating to false teaching and false teachers that we saw last time, is that the Holy Spirit has warned us very clearly numerous times that the problem, this problem, is going to dominate the future. It's always been a problem, of course, but it's going to be a real problem for the church. That's the essence. And we also saw that the phrase the Spirit explicitly says is referring to what the Holy Spirit has said, again, over and over. Not just that He has said it, but it's been said over and over in the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. There are numerous places in Revelation where it says the Spirit says and refers to Jesus' words. So we can understand the Spirit of the risen Christ. We see the same thing in the Gospels. We looked at a few examples The Spirit of the risen Christ is explicitly saying this over and over again, and we've seen lots of examples. And so Paul begins denouncing this pursuit of holiness because that's really what, or godliness, because that's really what's going on, that would include denying yourself marriage or certain foods to get close to God and to be spiritual. That's the essence, the simplicity of the passage. And he says this isn't a surprise because Jesus has already said it, and the Holy Spirit has made it clear over and over, all over the place, that it's going to be the trend. And we saw last time in 1 Peter, he said it as well. And it's just going to get worse as we get closer to the end. That's the, that's the issue. And now Timothy also understood that the Spirit was talking about present Ephesus because the Ephesian believers were conscious of living in the last days. And that's the next part of that first phrase there in verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that, here it is, in latter times some will fall away from the faith. And we saw that this is the key to the passage. It's the simple phrase, verse 1, some will fall away from the faith. The rest of the passage then, if we think about it that way, is just going to describe the environment or the situation or the conditions in which people fall away. And now we saw that falling away from the faith is nothing new, and we looked at that last week quite extensively. It happens today. Maybe if you've watched it happen to someone, maybe it's even happening to you and you don't even realize it yet, and these, maybe these series of messages can help you uh, identify those markers in your own life. But we saw Uh, Some examples that illustrate that uh, last time, it happened in the history of Israel uh, with everyone from kings down to peasants. There was always a people who will understand intellectually what's being said and who will behave, if you will, externally according to the revelation of God, but who have no heart for that. And and once we understand the problem for the church, uh, the better we're going to understand that the world is full of demons types of teaching. And this is the reason why we kind of paused here, and I think this is the reason why Paul particularly uh, was carried along by the Holy Spirit to bring this up. Anything that contradicts the Word of God is not some human concoction. It's not some human aberration. It's teaching from demons. They're behind all of it, and that's subjective genitive, doctrines of demons. It doesn't mean teaching about demons. It means teaching done by demons. And so we understand exactly where the source is. 
And we didn't look at this last time, but in the Old Testament history of seducing false doctrine, you can go all the way back to Genesis and back to the garden where the commander of all the demons, Satan, seduced Eve with his enticing, attractive insinuation. And what was it? That she might be being cheated out of the best thing. And perhaps it was God that cheated her by telling her she shouldn't eat of a certain tree. Not because, of course, that it was bad for her and it wasn't what the Lord had willed for her or for Adam, but because God didn't want her to have all the best things. So I think you can see that right away, uh, it's not like uh, just straight out front so obvious that you're like, oh, no. It's so insidious that it just works its way into your life. And then for Eve, it took her by surprise. And then you see all the way to, into Revelation, which we looked at last time, uh, you get a glimpse of the end times, which we'll see in just a moment. I'll remind you of some of those, and some of those we didn't have time to look at last time. The deception of demons at the end of the history of man. So starting right at the beginning, all the way to the end, you can see illustrations of this happening. False teaching doesn't come from clever men. I think we can understand very clearly it comes from demons, and that's why you can't expose yourself to it. Now, this may sound foreign to you. It didn't sound foreign to the first century Christian. They understood the work of demons on a plane that we can't see, but that we can experience. But for us, we're very used to psychobabble telling us it's psychology and it's some problem, but we don't understand that it's actually from and originating from demons. So it's hard for us to hear it. It sounds antiquated. It sounds like it's not relevant for us today because we're so, uh, we're so much more advanced and cosmopolitan and we know so much more. And uh, C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery that we know a whole lot more about the people, about what happened in the in first century than the people who lived there. But I think it's important to look at it from Paul's expressed, now he's expressing it to the church, and we still live in the church age, so it's just as relevant for us as it was. Now, I think it's important that we understand this then, that false teaching doesn't come from clever, clever men, it, does, it comes from demons. And that's why you can't expose yourself to it. And that's why it's so marvelous to have your children under the teaching of those who teach the word of truth. That's what you want to do. You want to make sure that that's who they're sitting under. Because not all demon teaching on the surface looks demonic. So it's not all the horns and the ugly face and all that speaking. See, I think we could easily discern that we probably shouldn't listen to that, right? But it's not all so obvious as that. Some of it is a lot more subtle it's not all cultic or occultic. It's not all satanic clubs at school and uh, Satan worshipers or Santeria, which we had down in Miami. Uh, those things illustrate, I think, the true condition of the world. But that's not really where most of this false teaching is going to appear to come from. It's obvious from a satanic club at school, you probably won't want to listen to what's being said. But it's not so obvious when it's blended into the culture, when it's the, when it's the fabric of the music and it's the fabric of, of film and all that. You have to be discerning and be able to understand that anything that contradicts what the Word of God says are doctrines of demons, and they're very, very subtle. In fact, so subtle, we might not even recognize it as such unless we look very closely because it's a small move in the direction that those who really rule the world and have temporary custody over the world want us to move. And we saw quite a few examples of, of, of that, which we won't look at again, but you can catch up with that online on the Berean Journey podcast. But we saw that whether it's a subtle influence or it could be a lack of time in the Word over time, which carries you in the direction you, not, you shouldn't be going, or being out of church for any or every reason, or just coming just once in a while, or replacing true worship and faithful doctrine with legalism or mysticism or sign gifts or asceticism, the things we looked at last time. Um, any number of those things can be propagated by false teachers. 
And all of this discussion really refers to a single word, an action in 1 Timothy 4.1. It says this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times market, uh, some will fall away from the faith. And will fall away is the Greek verb apostonte, which is for where we get our word uh, apostate. And the New, New, New American Standard grabs the correct tense. It's a future tense. The voice is middle, meaning they're going to act on themselves. They're moving themselves in that direction, away from what was true, away from what they confessed. And the mood is the mood of reality or assertion. So an apostate is someone who departs from and becomes faithless. And of course, they would still evaluate themselves as faithful, and anytime you've had to talk to someone who is moving away from faithfulness, and you mention the things that they're doing, of course, you're the one who's the bad guy, right? Um, they would consider themselves faithful. They don't understand they've moved away. They've been deceived. And, and uh, of course, faithful, though, isn't subjective, is it? Subject, uh, subjective. False teachers consider themselves faithful, too, don't they? All false teachers would consider themselves faithful, truly faithful to what the Word of God says and what it teaches. In fact, false teachers can use all the correct words, and they can use all the Bible and all the biblical doctrine, and it's all going to sound great, but in the end, somehow, it'll still be man-centered, and God will be auxiliary to all of it. And if you listen to false teachers, you understand they can say all the right things, but when it gets right down to it, you realize they've always been talking about people and not God, and God's just auxiliary to the whole process, but it's really you. And so it's a, small, it's a small movement, and you have to be aware of what's going on. And, and so no matter how they describe themselves, the Bible teaches and describes them as departing or from or falling away from the faith that they knew. And that was the second part of our understanding of false faith and false teaching. That was number two. That was just a departure from sound doctrine is called a falling away from what's, what you once affirmed to be the truth. It's a reflection then of the heart Departing or falling away from the faith, they understand the faith which they previously affirmed. That's the issue. Because an apostate is not someone who never knew the truth, but someone who did know. An apostate is not someone who never believed, but someone who believed on the outside. An apostate is someone who once behaved according to the revelation of God, but because the heart was never in it, because they never really knew God, they were able to be lured away by, and then this next part of the verse says, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They don't realize this is what's happening, of course, uh, but they're beginning to listen to what in reality are the seductive, insidious voices of the demons behind false beliefs and false forms of religion, and behind the dangerous attractions of the culture. All those kinds of things make their way in, and they don't realize that's what's happened. And that was principle number three from our passage, that all of these false forms of religion and false beliefs, no matter which human is saying them or modeling them, all find their source with demons. And we saw last time, the Scripture teaches that all false religion and all false beliefs and all idols spread demon doctrine, and they're animated by seducing demon spirits, all of them. And we looked at a lot of supporting passages in order to firm that up in our mind. But false teaching and false religious practices and cults in the entire culture even is the playground of demons. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 makes that very clear. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know, so this is common knowledge. It should be common knowledge to us. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we should know that we are of God, but we should also be aware that the entire world lies in the lap of the evil one. 
And that just means that Satan doesn't have to work in order to seduce the world. He doesn't have to work in order to seduce the world. They're already his. And the world systems and the attractions are arranged around things that seduce people. And I think this is a very important part of your biblical worldview. You need to understand 1 John 5.19. Around you, the world systems and attractions are all arranged around things that seduce people. And what are they? They're the very same things that Jesus was tempted of in, uh, during his temptation. The lust of the flesh. Sexual, physical attractions of the body, body image, immorality, all those kinds of things, the lust of the flesh, promoting the flesh, the culture is centered around that, and I don't have to tell you this, every commercial, almost everything that is promoted somehow is connected to that. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, and the culture is arranged in such a way to make it attractive, and their bondage. And then the lust of the eyes. So that's covetousness and greed, a desire to attain or have something, or on the other side, a dissatisfaction with what you do have. The culture is arranged to produce that. Always something nicer, smaller, faster, shinier, whatever it is, the culture is arranged to draw people in. The whole culture is under that seduction. It drives everything. It drives marketing. It drives all of that. This is not news to you. And also the boastful pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, that's physical and sexual attractions and body image and immorality. The lust of the eyes, that's covetousness and greed. A desire to have something or something better or dissatisfaction. And then the boastful pride of life, that's the third one. That's attraction of power or prestige or education in order to enhance your status or your standing. The whole culture is arranged around those three things. Satan has the entire culture. They're already his. He doesn't have to woo them. They're captured by those things. The world is attracted and captured and deceived by these things or derivatives of them. And the world is already Satan's and, and, and they have to be delivered from these things by the power of the gospel. I think you understand that. See, The gospel cuts through that. It turns on the light in the heart. You begin to see where you were deceived. What, what brought you in? The, the repentance is a repentance of these kinds of things. See, it's always going to include things that have to do with the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of life. If you give up your life to find it, these things are going to be excluded, you see? But Satan already has the whole world, so the influence is already there. So it shouldn't surprise us that demons and demon uh, doctrine is what makes its way into the lives of those who are deceived. And many times false teachers capitalize on these very things. These are the very things they actually talk about. And that's not surprising, right? They have the power of seduction built in. But in particular, we think about the church, which is Paul's focus. False teachers draw people with these kinds of things. God will do whatever you claim he'll do. God, God uh, wants you to have things. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be fulfilled. You see? What do we know for sure that God wants? God wants us to be holy God wants us to be, he's interested in us being holy. And he's, he's okay with whatever it takes for us to be holy. But see, the seduction of those things, of false teachers is, it's the doctrine of demons. It's the very thing they propagated in the entire culture. It's what's captured all the unredeemed. Satan doesn't have to work to keep them. All that stuff is very satisfying to them. But the issue really is that false teachers will make these things look great. And we have to be discerning about that. So Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so you can still be deceived. So Paul's telling the church, 
this has happened to Eve, you may still be in that particular position where you can be deceived. I'm afraid maybe that's happened. And that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity, always with Paul, the devotion to Christ. That was the reason for the hymn that we just read in chapter 3, verse 16. The devotion and purity of Christ. He is the center of all things. He's what we hold on to for our holiness. It's the only thing that is in our life that is worth anything. And so, He's afraid they'll be moved away from that simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And, beloved, it's the same person doing it himself or by proxy with the demons. That the serpent deceived Eve, and it's the same group that's going to deceive you, he said. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, it's very, very common in in false uh, teaching churches. Another Jesus. This is a Jesus that's satisfying to you, your own personal Jesus where he'll just do the things that you want him to do. See, and if you talk to someone about this, you know, your relationship to Jesus is not personal. It has a personal component to it that he redeemed you. But your, your relationship with, with Jesus is set out in the Word of God, and it's the same for everyone. And so I think this is really important. If you're, you receive a different spirit, which you've not received, so not the Holy Spirit, but another spirit. So if, if it's not the Holy Spirit, then what kind of spirit is it? Unholy ones. Or a different gospel which you've not accepted. That's the gospel that doesn't save. That's the gospel that's very satisfying to hear. That's the come and get instead of come and die. You bear this, he said, beautifully. And you remember how this false view of Jesus, this different spirit than the Holy Spirit and the gospel that doesn't save was preached by men and it deceived people, obviously, and Paul's concerned in the Corinthian church of that. And then in verse 13, he says, the real power of these false teachers, these deceivers, the real doctrine comes from Satan and the demons. And he says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, people who say this, people who do this, people who attract people this way. They're deceitful workers, and they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And we're going to look in just a minute. They look the part. Verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So they're just following their leader. Therefore, it's not surprising if, mark it, his servants, that's false teachers, false apostles, which would be anyone claiming to be an apostle since the first century, and any teacher that teaches anything apart from the simplicity of Christ and our understanding of sound doctrine, lead people to fall away. They also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So they look, and they sound like the real thing, but they're not. And that's a real problem with the church, isn't it? And that's why the warnings are so prolific as the age gets longer, as we get closer to the rapture of Christ. This is the problem, one of the main problems the church will face. Satan and his angels disguise themselves as angels of light and become the suppliers of religion and the suppliers of false doctrine and foolish behavior. And they animate it just enough to keep people coming back. And perhaps you've seen some of the Pentecostal Holy List Movement videos that have come out just recently. It's appalling to me. It's appalling that this many people are fooled and deceived by this kind of foolishness and making the gospel and making the relationship with Christ look like that. But they're deceived, aren't they? They think they have the whole story now, that we only have part of the story, but they've got the whole story and they're acting on it. That's a problem, isn't it? It's so, though, seductive that it looks like the real thing. And they call men to worship here or there, and this system or that system, and this belief or that belief, this idol or that idol, but behind the systems and behind the idols are demons, and idols are more than just carved images. 
And false beliefs and false religions are more than just systems of belief. They're the product of demons from the very start. False religious systems and beliefs and all idols are simply focal points for demon activity. As I told you last time, the Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door, uh, the Mormon that comes to your door, they've been deceived by demon doctrine. In fact, if you look at the history of those religions, many of their, many of their founders had visions. Did they not? And they heard things from people. And they wrote them down. And they thought they were speaking. And Muhammad, right? Muhammad, uh, he, had a, he said, a meeting with the, uh, the, ga- uh, the angel Gabriel, who gave him everything that they were supposed to believe. A demonic cult, which was responsible for the death of hundreds of millions of people. So understand, it's not just some aberration. I mean, they just came up with it. Understand everything, all these false teachings, anything raised up against the knowledge of Christ, we have to understand from Paul's system here and understanding of the system that this is all, all behind these things are idols. All behind idols are demons. All behind false religions are are demons. It's the product of demons from the start. Lying, seducing spirits pervade the doctrines of hell. And they don't really care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth, as long as you're distracted from sound doctrine. It might be, not be so far as the things I just said. It might be a slow movement away. It's always that, in fact, at the beginning. And they are, through these means, seducing people away from truth to falsehood, from the simplicity of our devotion to Christ into these complicated things that are supposed to then produce godliness. Seducing people away from the saving gospel to an eternal hell. That's the different gospel that you receive. That's not the one that saves. It's the one that leads to eternal hell. Apostasy is demon seduction. False religious worship, false religions worship demons. Animism worships demons. False religious practices are from a different spirit, a fallen one, 2 Corinthians 11. We saw numerous passages uh, last week where uh, the scripture says very clearly, God says to his people, when you sacrifice to false gods, you sacrifice to demons. So false doctrine is propagated by false apostles whose teachings are from demons and they teach a gospel that doesn't save because it's the teaching of demons and, is, and, and a Jesus that sounds right, but it's all about you and it's nothing about him. And in contrast to what is propagated by demons, John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all what? Yes, all truth For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father have are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and discloses it to you. So the source of the Holy Spirit's teaching is Jesus. And the source of all that Jesus says is God the Father. So we have this sound doctrine. We have this, this is correct and true, objectively, And it comes from what the Word of God says, passed down from God to Jesus himself. The source of all that Jesus says is God the Father. The Spirit leads you, he says, into all truth. These spirits Paul is talking about lead you into all error. They seduce, they lure, they deceive, and they're powerful, and they're principalities and powers against which the church must wrestle. And they've been around since creation. They know what men and women like. They understand attraction to those kinds of things. They're very seductive and understand precisely how to present it in such a way that it looks really, really good. So it's a call above all things to be awake And to understand what the Word of God says, to spend time in it every day, so that you understand the error. And the fight goes on constantly. 
Spirit, uh, scripture clearly reveals whether you're looking at the history of Israel, whether you're dealing with the church. Both histories affirm that there has always been a battleground between God and his truth and Satan and the fallen angels and their lies. And particularly then applicable to us in our time since the completion of the New Testament and the establishment of the church age, which we're still in. The fight goes on constantly and will get more intense as we approach the rapture. And because we know that during the tribulation, Matthew chapter 24, 24, it's a great passage that talks about the end times. You should read that. It is very informative, but um, we see Jesus say, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. I like that verse. Here, here's the, this capture the essence of it. In this end time tribulation time, when demons are there and false prophets will arise, they will be so convincing, if it were possible, they could fool even the redeemed who have the Holy Spirit and the Word. So it says, if it were possible. So it's, 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 a, it, it's promoting something that's not possible to happen, but that's how serious it is. The idea is they won't fool the elect, but it'll be so convincing that the unredeemed won't have a chance. So those who, who only verbally affirm the truth, but their hearts weren't in it, in the tribulation, they will be, uh, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses, we understand that first three years, spreading the gospel with power with sign, true signs and wonders, to make it clear what the gospel is. God's like that. He's merciful like that. Even in the tribulation where his wrath is going to fall on sinful men, even during that time, he has his witnesses out there making clear what the gospel is. But people who've only verbally affirmed, mentally affirmed what, they, what was true, but haven't really followed it, they're going to still have these 144,000. But the, the the things that are going to be said and the great false signs and wonders are going to be so powerful that they're going to lead away those people who have not understood the knowledge of the truth, that they don't have a chance. Jesus said, even if, if it were even possible to mislead the elect. In other words, it's going to be so complex and so convincing that even the elect would struggle to understand the difference between the two. So that tells you just how serious this is. And those being deceived during that time likely will have heard the truth but haven't responded to it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, again, speaking about uh, this coming time, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there is a sense in the culture, even during that time, and we can certainly see it now, this mystery of lawlessness, this, uh, which describes the man uh, who's going to come, the false Christ, he is the man of lawlessness, but the, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already in the culture. You can see it in those who lead. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So the power of, of God restrains the Antichrist so that he cannot come until the appointed time. Because God still runs all of this, okay? Even in the temporary custody the world has fallen into Satan, it's still not autonomous. They still can't do whatever they want. They still function under God's, under God's direction, under his calendar, exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And so the Lord is holding back uh, the man of lawlessness until the appointed time, and God's going to remove that restraint after the rapture of the church. And this passage says in verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. In other words, he's going to speak words, the words that are true from the word of God, and, and the lawless one will die and, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is 
the one who's coming, mark this, is in accord with the activity of Satan. So speaking of the lawless one, God is going to remove that restraint. He's going to come at the appointed time, and he's going to come, mark it, with the activity of Satan, with all power and all signs and false wonders. So you can still see the exact same thing Paul's talking about in the church in the first century is going to move in a powerful way more and more towards the end until during the tribulation it'll be in full force. And people won't be able to discern. You're going to be captured by it if, you have, if you're a positive. If you've heard the truth and haven't responded, then you've got no chance. So if we think that the deception and the misleading and the false belief propagated now is bad, and you should think that, beloved, okay? If you don't think it's a big deal, then you're not, you're not understanding the seriousness of this passage and how far off those who are in false uh, religions are and false teachers, how bad they are. Because it's easy for us to say, is it that big a deal? Is it that big a deal because they believe X? Well, it is a big deal, right? If the Scripture is very clear about you should believe this in a certain way, if they're different than that, then that's a problem, isn't it? And it's a movement away. But people think that's not a big deal because we're not that concerned in the modern church about doctrine and about sound doctrine and understanding that teaching from the Scripture and why we believe what we believe and why that's important. But God will allow during this tribulation time that deception and misleading and false belief propagated uh, by demons. If it's bad now, wait till the tribulation. God's going to allow enough animation to happen, enough signs, false signs, enough false wonders, enough of what's being said to come true that people will be fooled. And we know the false prophet uh, and the Antichrist will fool people wholesale in the tribulation. So from Adam then to Revelation, this is a history of seducing spirits, applying doctrines of demons against unwitting human souls. But in the last days before the rapture, we know from verse 1, the demons are the ones doing the animation and propagating false doctrine right now. And, and they're doing it as a precursor to the tribulation. Through 1 Timothy 4.2 says, now look at verse 2, by means of, he says, or through, the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This is principle number four as we look through this understanding of our passage of false teaching and false teachers and the doctrines of demons, we not only know the source of all false teaching, which are demons, but their mouthpiece is always human. Their mouthpiece is always human. And it's just obvious because all of our examples show this to be the case, right? I mean, uh, we understand because we have experience in this, in this uh, arena. We understand that it comes through the mouthpiece of men or women. It's done through human Agents, through the sor- though the source is supernatural, the vehicle is natural. The source, supernatural, vehicle, natural. The deceit occurs on the human level. And verse 2 says, uh, Paul has carried along to say that these men are hypocrites they, that tell lies, and that's principle number 5. So their means of hypocrisy, we know they're men, the hypocrisy of liars, principle number 5 of our passage. These men are hypocrites that tell lies, and that's number 5. They look sincere, they look religious, they say the right things, but on the inside, they are and they do the opposite. So those who have discernment can see this. If you watch long enough, you realize that there's going to be some conflict. There's going to be some problems. You're going to see some hypocrisy. You're going to see some lies. They're going to appear to be religious on the outside. They certainly will appear to be pastors or priests or religious leaders of one kind or another. They undoubtedly will look sincere, and they'll say the right things, 
They will look like they want to help people have a better life. They're going to say they want you to be closer to God. They may carry a Bible. They can say all the correct Christian things, but on the inside, they're the opposite of that. The way they conduct themselves will show uh, the way they really think will become apparent because they're hypocrites. They do the opposite of what they say they believe. It's a facade. And even if you can't pick it up, you have to understand if it's false doctrine that they're purveying, you have to understand that this part is going to be true. You won't always get to see because sometimes they're really good at hiding it. And then when they get interviewed by someone, they're always going to justify whatever it is that they're doing and make it look spiritual. But they do the opposite of what they say they believe. And they mask the demon face with a mask of religiosity. And they mask the demon voice with a voice of understanding and a voice of concern. See. But they're just pretending to exalt, exalt God, whom they don't exalt at all, but rather Satan, whom they do exalt. And of course, they may not understand that they're really exalting Satan at that point. They've moved away from sound doctrine, so now the voice piece, they're the mouthpiece of demon doctrine. And you have to listen very carefully to what they say, and you have to be able to discern the departure, and sometimes that's easy to do, and sometimes that may be more subtle. And they seem to always have this big audience, too, and they'll purvey their magnanimous pitch, but they are really just the natural spreading the doctrine of a supernatural. And then we see seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. And that's principle number six. They seem to be able to pull this off in a very genuine and believable manner. And once it gets so bad, you just listen to it and just think, how in the world are they able to say that with a straight face? And I love Paul moving in this direction. They can pull it off just perfectly. They have spoken demon deception then, beloved, for so long, their conscience no longer responds or feels anything. There's no sensitivity to the truth. They teach false things and they truly believe what they say, and that is because of the conscience. The conscience is the part of, of us that God has given that's there to affirm or condemn an action. And we've looked at this often. I think you understand this very clearly because we see Paul using this. My conscience is clear. My conscience doesn't condemn me. Their conscience will condemn you. We understand what the conscience is. It's informed either correctly or incorrectly over time. The Lord has given it to us at birth. It is that barometer by which it informs us and says you shouldn't do this or you should. It's only going to respond to the highest moral level that you, that you are bringing in. And, and this term seared or burned is where we get our medical term we now call cauterizing. And it's perfect passive particle, particle, participle. It's to burn or to scar. So they've been scarred to the point where they can, carry, they can carry on their life, their hypocrisy, and seem to have no regrets and no shame. They can just do it, and it doesn't even seem to prompt anything. Uh, guys like Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes and, and Joyce Meyer and Robert Tilton and a dozen other ones, okay? They can just say it and you watch the interview and you listen to him speak on a talk show and you're just like, this is unbelievable. And yet they say that with a clear conscience as if they're speaking holiness to everyone. They've spoken demon ideas and demon deception so many times their conscience has been seared as with an iron. There's no reaction anymore. This is the continuous position of their heart. 
That's the participle part of that. Their sensitivity to right and wrong, their sensitivity to truth and integrity has been scarred beyond function. And Paul says their conscience has been turned into scar tissue and they no longer feel a thing. Their nerves are dead and they're burned. And, and I'll just say this to you because I, I think it's important at this point to say this. As I read this passage, just as a footnote, I will tell you um, that after all these years of teaching the Bible, if there's one thing that I fear above all things is that I might speak something up here that isn't true. Above all things. And I pray regularly that every time I step into the place of teaching God's Word, I will never utter anything that isn't true. That, that's something my conscience pounds into me all the time. I, I always ask the question, are you sure? As, as soon as our men publish this on YouTube and on our, on our podcast, I go and listen, and they'll tell you. I've called them and said, please take it down. Because I heard something that I expressed inaccurately, and I don't want that to be heard, and I don't care that we're just getting rid of the whole thing. It is the most important thing to me. And not because I want your attention or because I want you to think something about me. I don't want you to think about me at all. When we go through the Word of God, I want you to be focused on Him. I want you to be worshiping Him. I want you to understand Him. I want you to exalt Him. I want you to walk with Him. I don't want you to think about me. I'm not interested in you wondering whether, you know, wow, that was great or that wasn't great or I wish you'd make a point once in a while or, you know, cut it off at some point. You know, I don't want you to think about me at all. I don't want to be a distraction in any way. And I'm very cognizant of this, this calculus for me. When there are many words, Proverbs 10, 19, what is the rest of it? Transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And after I've completed a message, I, you know, on Thursday I'm completely done. And, and I'm very specific about how, when this needs to conclude. And I don't, there's no Saturday night specials for you. You don't get any of that, Okay. I'm done on Thursday, sometimes a little before, a little earlier, sometimes later, always on Thursday, I'm done. And after I've completed that message, I may spend hours, I may spend a whole day digging back into something I've already prepared because I may not have phrased it quite right. On Sunday mornings, I'm here early before anyone else gets here, and I read through my sermon, and I can't even count the times that I have gone back to look something up. I did it this morning. To make sure that I've got this right, that I'm going to phrase this correctly for you, and you're not going to walk out of here with a, a misunderstanding. And I've written notes to myself at home. My wife will tell you, I've, woke, I've awakened at the middle of the night, and, and I'll be typing on my phone. She says, what are you doing? I'm making a note for Sunday morning. Because I was thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't know if I got that right. I don't know if I said that right. And so I'll make a note, I'll send it to myself so it'll pop up on my phone at the right time at 8 o'clock or on when we're two services at 6.45, and I, it'll be there, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. And I'll pull up that section of sermon, like, okay, let's see if I said this right. Let's add this, or let's subtract this other part. Or I'll chase down some side trail to make sure the context is right. And you may wonder, man, he gets on some rabbit trails and we go down. But I, I feel like sometimes in the Word of God, there are things we need to make clear basic principles of the Word of God before we can come back and understand the whole thing uh, perhaps the writer is telling us. And so we'll go down that side trail to make sure we understand that. And maybe I didn't understand it correctly. And my conscience demands out of me that I deal with the truth as truth because it's God's truth. And I, I really only have one audience member. And I, I'm cognizant of the fact that that audience member has already said in James chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you're going to incur a stricter judgment. I'm always cognizant of that. 
I have one audience. That's it. That's the only one who needs to be pleased. He's the one who spoke it into place. And that's it. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's the perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. There are no perfect men, and I'm not one. And so we have to take some time with this. And what I dread more than anything else is representing this incorrectly and teaching it incorrectly. And I don't like to use myself as an illustration, but I just thought I'd stop right here and just say this. I need you to know this is what I think. Leading people instead of of understanding a lack of understanding and leading them not to sanctification, but to worldliness or falsehood. See, I I don't want to do that. And there's no perfect people, but we do our best. I do my best to make sure this happens. And it isn't because I want to be better than someone else. It has nothing to do with that. It isn't because I want recognition. Far from it. I don't want you to think about me at all. I, I, don't, I don't want to be calloused, and I don't want to have a seared conscience, and I don't want to keep teaching things incorrectly, and I don't want to automatically assume that I got that right first time through. And I don't want to play fast and loose with the text, and I don't want anybody else who teaches here to do that, and they know that. I'm interested in what's true and what is correct, understanding the sake of God's people and for his glory, and I want to model that to you and to our other pastors. When we spend too much time talking about what we think at the beginning, I always tell our guys, you spent too much time talking about what you thought, and you didn't spend enough time in the Word at the beginning. And that's why I have such a hard time then when we get to this section, and there's other passages in First and Second Corinthians we've looked at, with the foolishness that comes from the pulpit, passing off things that are not true and never even having a problem with it, or passing off things that are weak, things that don't make a point, things that waffle and don't say what it really is, and don't come to the meaning. You know, every teacher, that's the big struggle, isn't it? If you're teaching, what is the meaning for the first century church? It's always that. And it's not multiple meanings, it's one meaning, and you've got to get down to that. And sometimes it falls off the the branch a little easier than other times, and other times you're climbing up and it's a hard fight. But that's the issue for every Bible teacher. You can't come up here and be unprepared. You can't come up here and you can't deal with your small group and not be ready. See, you don't don't want to do that, pass off stuff that's half-baked. You don't want to be in anywhere close to the apostate camp who either won't take a stand because the hermeneutic of humility, that's what I like to call it, the hermeneutic of humility. Here it is. You want to know what it is? I can't possibly be right enough and confident enough in myself to say this is the real meaning. Or, here's the other one, I can't possibly be arrogant enough to say you're wrong well, then we're in a perfect position for false doctrine, aren't we? Because we just throw out all false doctrine if all of it's correct. How could all of it be correct? Do you understand? That's the, that's the hermeneutic of humility. That is in so many pulpits right now. And it's in so many universities. We have a doctrinal statement that we won't say is right. How is that possible? What was the reason why the, the founders wrote it? Why did they take so much time with it? Why there were so many church meetings and councils to pound it out? This is the reason. This is what it is. This is why we believe it. That's just so important, beloved. But we've minimized that because we think we've achieved this higher level of spirituality. The hermeneutic of humility. I can't possibly know what's right or say this is correct. See. 
or they're apostate because they've thrown out sound doctrine and good biblical study habits in order to push an agenda or a reputation or make sure people feel good when they leave because that equals more people and that equals more money. See, that's how it always works out. I mean, you, you can dice it up whatever you want. That, that's pr pretty much how it works out. But in that apostasy, they've scarred their own conscience and with a scarred conscience, they feel nothing as they purvey the lies of demons, and they don't care. And, and what are some of those lies of demons? And we're out of time, so I'm just going to read the passage and comment on it briefly, and we'll get there next week, Lord willing. Look at verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Now, there's a lot here, and I don't, I, and I want to do it justice, so I'm not going to fly through it. But just in general, they really had two things that they were communicating to people. Remember, these are men communicating demon deception, okay? That's who we're talking about. Men communicating demon deception. That was the whole context of it. And the demons whispered and the men spoke and said, if you want to be spiritual and you want to know God and show that you possess salvation, number one, you shouldn't get married, and number two, you should abstain from certain foods. Those are the two things they were saying in the church. Very, very simple. And I guess people will say, I mean, that doesn't seem so bad, does it? I mean, being single is not a big deal, is it? I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, honor singleness. I mean, John 19 says Jesus has given the gift of singleness to people, so why is that a big deal? And, you know, if you don't want to eat, that's fine, right? There's a place for fasting. There's, there's a place for a rather sparse diet. Is that a big deal, right? What's the problem? But that's not the point. The point is they were seeking by self-denial to attain spirituality. In other words, salvation for them was built in on what they denied themselves. Holiness and godliness was built on what they didn't do. And that's typical of false religions, isn't it? Which are doctrines of demons. Human means by which you become saved, right? Either by the things you do or by the things you don't do. Isn't that typical of all false doctrine? You're saved or you're holy by things you do or don't do. That's legalism, isn't it? That's legalism. You, you show you're saved by things you don't do. I want people to think I'm holy, because, so I'm not going to do this. Instead of, I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do because I want to honor Him and I love Him. Human means by which you become saved or godly, either by things you do or don't do. That's typical of all the religions of human achievement. And initially, they don't look like a big deal. But both of these have been around for a really long time, long before the church in Ephesus, and they're still around today. And Lord willing, we're going to look at some historical context next time and then some modern applications and so you can recognize them. All right? Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. Love you guys. I'm glad that you were here. Thanks for sticking with me on a rather difficult passage. Let's, let's give the Lord praise. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of knowing you. We're grateful for our relationship to you through Jesus. We thank you that he is our holiness, that apart from him, we are not holy, and there are no good things that we have. We cling to him and him only. We understand his, uh, his birth, his life, uh, his death, and his resurrection are the things that bring us to God. We understand that these are the things we hold on to. It's these things we rejoice in, the completed work of Christ. We're so grateful for the, the word and how clear it is about that. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who made it uh, really his mission to talk about this mystery of godliness, always connected to Jesus. And now then we get to this section which just seems perhaps to our jaded ear or our magnanimous mind so overblown. Why is this such a big deal? Why, why is it so important that Paul pointed this out? 
And, and I guess, Father, we need your wisdom, and we also need a discernment and understanding, and then maybe a good uh, a breath of your understanding from your Holy Spirit to realize how far we've fallen away from the importance of sound doctrine. Uh, how important it is for us to be in the Word, which we talk about all the time, but be in the Word uh, qualitatively. Not just so I can say I read through the whole entire Bible in a year, but that I began to assimilate these things. I understood uh, some of your nature, Father, some of the way you work with people, some of the work of Christ, some of the promises and some of the commands. And I began to put them to work and I began to be sanctified and my mind is being changed and is beginning to focus on other things. Lord, these are the things we need in order to be discerning as we're so far down the timeline waiting for Christ's return. There's so much deception. And those of us who have families, especially young ones, we need to be so careful what they're exposed to, being clear about what's true. Not that we're trying to keep them in a bubble or a shell or something. They have to understand how to function in the world, but they also have to understand, have a biblical worldview. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us to be wise in those things. And Lord, we thank you today, too, that all these things, all of this, sound doctrine, the understanding of your word and all that, is all about the gospel. It's all about... Uh, presenting the gospel so people can be set free from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. To be set free from being in the lap of the evil one, deceived by all these things which seem so satisfying. And so, Father, I pray that you'll, you'll help us to be those kinds of people, praying for people first, and all men, and all who are in authority, and all leaders and kings. We might affect a change by our prayer time, seeking peace, seeking redemption for those who don't know you. Instead of railing all the time, uh, praying to. It's okay to be discerning, to understand truth, to be, to be appalled at the error and things that are being said, but also to be praying because you have tasked us with that job of impacting our culture, first with prayer, and then, of course, being able to take captive every thought and cast down every high thing that's raised up against the knowledge of Christ through your word. So, Father, help us be those kinds of people. We love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbors around us like ourselves and help us to give the gospel to every creature and teaching them to obey all that you've told us. And thank you that you're with us. Wait for your son's return. In the meantime, help us to be an effective church modeled on what your New Testament says and doing those things wholeheartedly like the Bereans of old, studying to make sure they're correct and then doing them. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen.